Shemaya Kroiso. Hello and welcome to the New York Welsh podcast. The podcast that celebrates Welsh success stories in New York while inspiring the creation of a few new ones. I'm Gideon. And I am Richard. Today we sat down with director, writer Claire Fowler, whose film recently screened at the Tribeca Film Festival. Yes, her short film Salam uh, was uh, filmed uh, and obviously set here in New York. Um, it's about a female Lyft driver and uh, some of the, the things that happened to her on a, one of her night shifts. Yeah, Claire is pretty unique in the sense that her entire filmmaking career, or certainly her career began um, with a set of documentary films covering Palestine um, and as well as the kind of Syrian conflict and um, that's a thread that she's recently come back to in uh, Salam. It's something that we cover quite a bit in detail in this episode, um, as well as Claire's approach to filmmaking, uh, along with kind of what it's like to manage multiple jobs in, in, in the film industry. That's one of the things I liked about Claire. She's multidisciplinary. She's got what I suppose you could call a day job. She's a script supervisor uh, on indie films and long-running TV shows here in New York, and that's a very hard job. Uh, but... Obviously, whenever she gets the chance, she's also working on her own projects, which is, I think, pretty inspiring. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable um, film. It's one that I thoroughly enjoyed. I really enjoyed having the conversation with um, Claire about this, and I have no doubt that she's going to go on to do um, pretty amazing things. So without further ado, we give you Claire Fowler. We should probably uh, maybe start at the beginning. And one of the questions I had for you, Claire, is uh, maybe about, tell us about where you're your connection to Wales and um, I gather it's, it's North Wales is that right? Yeah uh, I'm from a small village called Kilkin in North Wales which is not too far away from Wrexham and a town called Mould which everybody in the States always laughs asses <laughs> off whenever I say yeah. Uh, did, and you, did you grow up there? I did um, so I went to the local primary school and then the comprehensive school there um, I left at 18 to go to London to do a fine arts, um, I forgot what's, what it's called, like a, you know, the year course, the foundation course, mm-hmm. yeah, a fine art foundation course in London, that's when I left. Oh, very cool. And do you, do you go, travel back to Wales much? Um, I try and go back about once a year. I don't always manage it. Family's still there? Yeah. And my sister and my brother still live there. My brother lives um, in Conway. Um, my sister lives in a little town called Rosesma, which is not too far away from Kilkin. And my parents live pretty much kind of on the border between like England and Wales. Oh, lovely. Very cool. Um, well, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to finally meet you. I was um, watching uh, Salem actually two nights ago um, and got really excited <laughs> about this conversation. Oh, so it's, it's really high quality. I, I was impressed. Thank you. I don't know, with short films, you never really, you never know the quality. They they can vary greatly. And I think this is probably one of the slickest ones I've seen. That's good. Um, thanks for saying that. Yeah, it, it wasn't a high budget. And that's the thing. I mean, I the work that I make, um, I'm, I'm very kind of perfectionist. And in, in a sense, as a filmmaker, kind of type A in that I know what I want. And I don't really like to compromise. And we really had no like resources to make this film so it so was really hard just before this i was saying to richard i was saying you look at that film you can tell they had money that's what i said oh that's really interesting it looks really good um so maybe, maybe for for our audience at home if you could tell us a little bit about salam and maybe the concept and where it came from and um yeah we can we can dig into that a little 
Um, so Salam is a film about a female Lyft driver who has to navigate the night shift in New York City. And it's a fiction film. Uh, the, the female Lyft driver is uh, an immigrant from Syria. Um, actually, in the film, it explains, it gives a little bit more of a backstory, which will explain why it's so specific. She's um, Palestinian diaspora who was born in Syria. And that was really important to me because I had made a couple of documentaries in Palestine 10 years ago. And the last time I was there, I was staying in a village called Beit Iqsa, which was um, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and it was surrounded by the separation barrier. And to access this village, you had to get through a checkpoint. That was the only way you could get there. And, you know, consequently, the village was really not thriving. People weren't allowed to enter past the barrier to go to work in Israel where the jobs were. But um, quite often they just weren't allowed to pass the barrier even to go through to Ramallah or Jerusalem. Uh, so I made a kind of a portrait of this village and I became quite good friends with this uh, English teacher called Fatima. And as I was leaving, Fatima said to me, you're going to leave and you're going to forget about us because everybody does. <laughs> that just broke my heart. It was so sad. And I haven't forgotten about her. You know, I went on and I did lots of different things that took me very far away from Palestine. But I knew that I always wanted to do something or make another film that in some way recognized the Palestinians and, you know, gave a little insight into their situation. So I knew I wanted to make a film with a Palestinian protagonist at some point. And then um, it was 2016, the presidential election was going on. As we all know, there was so much anti-immigrant rhetoric, which has just grown since. So as an immigrant in New York, I wanted to show solidarity with other immigrants. And um, I wanted to, I wanted my protagonist to be a Lyft driver because I felt like, you know, New York is a city of huge contrasts, there's huge inequalities of wealth. And one of the things that brings uh, people from many different classes and different communities and different societies together is you know that brief moment sometimes you're forced to spend in a cab with somebody who's so completely unlike yourself and that's kind of really where the the idea started um, so i'm curious about um the connection to palestine where, where was the where did that connection initially come from and what drew you to um, part of the world so I, I guess, as you know, almost everything in the film industry, every opportunity comes from somebody you know, right? Um, my brother is a nurse, and he was volunteering for this organization called the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, which is an American organization that provides health care to um, Palestinian kids, or actually not even Palestinian kids, any kids who are in the Middle Eastern area who don't otherwise have access to the health care that they need. Um, so my brother had done a couple of medical missions to, I think it was Ramallah and Hebron in the West Bank. And he spoke to Steve, who's the CEO of the organization. He said, my sister's a filmmaker. She should make a film for you. And Steve was like, okay, cool. And that's kind of how it happened. You know, he gave me a little bit of money, set aside a little bit of money from the organization. Uh, we had a chat about the kinds of missions that would be good to profile, what kind of things would be interesting. 
I had a chat with a surgeon in London who had a mission coming up. He was a heart surgeon, and he really wanted me kind of to be a part of that. He felt like it was a really important and interesting and compelling story to follow, Um, and that's kind of how it came about. So the story that we ended up uh, telling was about a little boy called Jamal who's 18 months old, and he lives in the northern part of the West Bank, and we basically followed his journey a literal journey through the West Bank, through the checkpoints to the hospital in Jerusalem where he was going to get this um, heart surgery that would basically change his life. Because if he didn't have this hole in his heart repaired, then he was going to have a lot of health issues later in life. He's going to be smaller, prone to infections. You know, it can really have a devastating effect on these kids. And we did that. And so many things happened on the way, like Jamal's dad wasn't allowed past the final barrier into Jerusalem. So he had to, you know, stay behind while his son and his wife went on to have this surgery. And obviously surgery, any surgery is incredibly dangerous. People die all the time from the simplest of surgical procedures. So yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was really enlightening and it was a great team. How long were you, how long were you out there? It was really short. Mm -hmm. We spent a lot of time prepping and planning, speaking to the surgical team in the UK um, because the surgeon liked to take a lot of his team with him because he knew how they each worked. So he had his anesthesiologist, he had his perfusionist, who's the guy who who uses the heart-lung machine. Um, I think he had a couple of nurses as well. And then we were in contact with the cardiologist who was Palestinian and he was suggesting different kids that he had seen who might be suitable. And I don't know if he deliberately chose an incredibly cute kid, but that's what we got. So it worked out really great and a really lovely family as well. Uh, But when we went over there, we were only there for 10 days and we were only, we we went up to the house, which is a very short distance. I think it's about 20 miles or something. It took us something like eight hours to get there because of the roundabout routes that you're required to take and the number of checkpoints and everything else. So we went up there on one day. We stayed overnight with the family, got to know the family a little bit, had a big dinner with them. And then we got up really early the next day and traveled back to Jerusalem, which takes even longer because they don't want people coming into Jerusalem. Wow. I think must be, I'm just staggered by what a challenging effort that must have been for, for one of your first um, kind of big big films, or documentary films. I mean, I, I imagine, no, I, I'm obviously not close to this world, but I can imagine this must be pretty difficult putting on any, um, any production or any film um, like that, but to try and do it with that context across those boundaries must have been, well, I can't imagine how challenging this, that must have been. Uh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, if you see the film, there's one of the checkpoints. Uh, we kept, we managed to keep filming. I think we put the camera, whilst it was still filming, through the X-ray machine. Um, and we, we had uh, the Israeli soldiers just refused to let us pass at one point, and they didn't want the kid to pass, even though we had the required visa. And was that because you were filming? Was there an added sensitivity around that? Or I was it just standard protocol? It never helps. But 
having spoken to the people who are moving around the West Bank every day, this is a standard operating procedure for them. You know, they can just randomly be, be denied entry even though they have visas. Um, and we were lucky because we were traveling with this this amazing nurse. He's from New Zealand called Warren Nairn, who I'm still friends with. Um, and he was arguing with the soldiers on the behalf of the mother because the Palestinians, they're not going to argue because they know the consequences. So she was very politely and nicely saying, I have this required permit. My son's going to surgery. Please let us pass. And they were saying no. And then we had this big New Zealand nurse who was like, no, I'm not having this. We're getting through. We have the permits. Let us through. And we just argued and argued until finally we were allowed through. And they didn't like us filming, but we managed to keep filming. Um, so we managed to get that on camera, which was great. Was it, was it just you on the crew? No, I had a DP. Um, and we had, you know, a shotgun mic that was attached to the camera. It was an HDV camera. I was telling you how old it is. <laughs> and what was the reaction when you told kind of friends and family that you were making, making this film? Well, my brother, who had kind of organized this whole thing, was really excited for me, and I was really grateful to him, you know, because it was such an amazing opportunity. And it kind of came at a time where I was feeling like... Because I'd gone to art school as for my undergrad, and... You went to Oxford? Was it Oxford? Yeah, yeah. Oxford, um, the Ruskin yeah. School of Fine Art and Drawing, which was a really great experience. But after coming out of art school, I was kind of making more artistic kind of work and, and work that was kind of more in the sensibility of fine art but feeling increasingly frustrated and kind of isolated from just stuff that was going on in the world and I believe just before it was like a year or so before I went to Palestine for the first time there was the bombings in London on the London mm. tube and one of one of my classmates from the Ruskin was on one of those trains and was killed in that bombing and I just remember thinking oh my god like I can't just make, I, I can't just kind of continue in this world kind of floating around wanting to make just pretty things. Like I have to engage with what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I, I also want to talk a bit more about, you know, what it's like to work here in comparison to the UK and then did, did we can you talk about some in, in, This is like... Did I work in film in the UK? No, I made... Two, f two short films in the UK. But not in that. I'd right. never worked on anyone else's productions. But I tell you what, I did work on a, a UK production here. I worked on Disobedience, Sebastian Lelio's new film with Rachel Weiss and Rachel McAdams. Um, and they mostly shot in London, but they had a few scenes here, so they came over for a few days. And um, that was really interesting because, in the, as you know, the UK, they work 10-hour days, not 12-hour days, um, which was great. You know, it was just so... Uh, it, it's it's hard coming here and the, the extra hours that they make you put in. Honestly, like... So you're saying it's a good thing because you can get more done. Is that what you... No, oh, I'm well, saying that the 10 oh. hours was really nice because... you get I, to go home. You get to go oh. home and have an evening. Those two extra hours make a huge amount of difference to your standard of living. So, so this is your other kind of, I guess, job or day job, should we say? Yeah. Um, which is script supervising. Um, I think so, it, so for those who don't, yeah, yeah, I think it'd be worth just explaining what a script supervisor is. I think most people don't know what that job role. I didn't until Gideon explained it to me over breakfast this morning. Okay, that's fair enough. A script supervisor is someone who on set works really closely to 
with the director. They're literally sitting next to the director the whole day. and it's Like an assistant coach? Kind of. of. You're, I mean, part of the job is basically making sure that nobody makes any mistakes on continuity. And continuity is something... Um, that obviously exists across all areas. So it's not only continuity of wardrobe, continuity of makeup, continuity of action, like did they pick up the glass with this hand or that hand, Uh, but it's also continuity of camera angles, eyeline, the things that they're saying, you know, is it matching the script? Are they improvising in a way that kind of changes the story that's being told? So a script supervisor is kind of in charge of all of that. And I figured that it would be a good way of getting more on-set experience. Um, You must have a good memory or need a good attention to detail to be able to do that job, I imagine. Yeah. um, I think a a trick that a lot of script supervisors have is that they they don't have great memories. They just write stuff down. (laughs) They just make notes. Right. Um, which which I do but when you're on set you know if you're on set of a tv show for example um, you're the only person apart from the director who really is maybe the sound person too closely paying attention to every take you know what is being said and what Mm. happens in every single take so you know the production really really well so stuff does kind of stay in your memory so when things crop up maybe two months later that seem incongruous or seem wrong you know you kind of rely on on that like just ring you know just igniting something in your memory like oh wait he's talking about his dad driving a taxi but in this scene that we shot two months ago he talks about how his dad is retired so Mm. uh there's a problem here right so it's like sitting on the board or a leadership team of a company in the sense that you know, most employees don't see how everything, the mechanics of how everything interacts within the business. But obviously a few people sit at that 50 foot level who can oversee and see the connection points between them. That's kind of like the role it sounds like you exactly, play. Exactly, because all the departments, they've got their main focus. They've got the thing that they're in charge of. And uh, also the way you shoot a, a movie or a TV show is very segmented. We're not shooting it in order and you're doing bits from the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie people are coming actors are coming and going all the time because they're filmed in the same building so you shoot them on the same day and so we're shooting all these things that eventually will need to be stitched together into a movie and that's what I think the script supervisor is doing right making sure that all these pieces we get are going to fit together the way we think they're going to right yeah it's it's about catching anything that could you know, take you out of the suspension of disbelief. Because when you go in there, you want to immerse yourself in the story that's being told. And if you're noticing, wait, his leg was crossed in that shot and it's not crossed in this, you know, reverse shot or whatever, if you start noticing these little mistakes, it really takes you out of the story. It ruins the illusion. Hmm. So, you know, our job is to kind of maintain the illusion. Hmm. Oh, I like that way of putting it. Um, and is it a typical... Is it a typical progression point at four directors? Like, is it a good stepping stone? I'm not sure there's any particular role that is the best way to get into directing. There are script supervisors who've made that progression, who are kind of inspiring. Um, who would they be? Like, um, I'm trying to remember their names. <laughs> <laughs> um, there Sorry. was one woman, uh, she was a script supervisor on Mad Men. And she didn't, I think, I believe the story is that she did the pilot and Matthew Weiner wanted her to do the first season and she didn't want to. 
um, but he really wanted her. He worked really well with her. So she made the deal, look, I'll do season one, but only if you write into my contract, if you get a season two, I can direct an episode. I believe. That's wow. the story I've heard. And That's then genius. she was nominated for an Emmy for her first episode. Let me find her name. Wow. So my, my creative partner here... Um, Huge has actually worked on the title sequence for Madman. He designed the you know the famous oh, cool. Falling Man, um, and he he won an Emmy for that, um, which is kind of cool. Emmys all over the place. I feel left out. <laughs> well, I haven't got one. Oh, good. I've got a Royal Television Society Award. Well, I got a certificate. <laughs> a certificate. <laughs> do you have it post? Do you have it up on the wall? <laughs> Your mum got it up on the wall. Someone. I feel like someone should. So do you think that you have um, improved as a filmmaker by sitting in on these these huge TV shows and, and much larger jobs, picking up tips, and that you've been able to take that into your own work? Yes, I've, I've absolutely learned a lot from script supervising and stuff that I've been able to bring into directing. And um, I guess, funnily enough, a lot of it is what not to do. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's. I think one of the biggest issues you probably have experienced this. The, one of the the biggest problems on set is uh, lack of communication. And when there's no communication, you know, the the set is not running smoothly. People are not happy. Um, we're losing time. Stuff isn't getting done. People are bored. They're frustrated. Uh, that's just one thing that you know I I never wanted to take into my minuscule productions. It was, you know. There's always issues. There's always things that we can do better, you know, when you're rushing and you're trying to, you know, beat the light or something and you, your sound guy's running after you going, what are we doing? Where are we going? What? You know, there's always those kind of situations, but you just try as best you can to avoid them by being organized and by planning and by, you know, speaking to the people who need, you know, to have those conversations with you. And as far as being part of the the industry here, did that help in terms of crewing up and casting and finding willing locations and things like that? Um, yeah, I I really I'm not sure how I would have crewed up for Salam if I hadn't worked on a bunch of indie films here. Uh, there was this this feature film was one which was one of the first features I worked on. Uh, when I started script supervising, it's called How He Fell in Love. And I think the ho- the whole crew was, I mean, it was like everyone's second or first film to work on as a mm. crew member, but everyone was, it seemed like almost everybody had come out of film school, so they had a good grasp on what they were doing. And everyone, it was so young, like everyone on it. I was, I, me and the makeup guy were like the oldest people on it. And everyone else was like 23, I think. <laughs> um, and they, but they were great. They had a lot of enthusiasm. And there was this really great gaffer on it who, you know, he, he was struggling every day with not having the resources and the money and the time to make the film look as beautiful as he wanted. And he was so great. 
and I stayed in touch with him and stayed friends with him and when I was making Salam I reached out to him thinking he's not going to want to do this this is like way too small and shitty for him and he was like yeah this sounds really fun so he came on board and then he really solved a lot of problems for us because we were shooting with a car rig and we needed to get a car rig and we also needed to get a grip who could rig a car and we didn't have a shit ton of money to spend on it and Sean found those people for us which was really great and they I think everybody got paid. There may have been a PA or something who slipped onto set that I didn't know about who didn't get paid, but everybody got paid. They didn't get paid well, though. Um, But in terms of casting, um, it's just every, every single thing is... Everything you shoot, every film is so individual. It's so hard to kind of go through your mental list of people that you know and you've worked with and and kind of make them fit, especially for Salam, because we Mm. needed people who spoke Arabic and Mm. preferably people who spoke the right dialect of Arabic because they were meant to be Syrian or at least from an area very close to Syria. Um, So that that was tough to find those people. But having had the experience of making the documentaries, I already had some contacts in the kind of Palestinian world and then... I had friends that I'd studied with who were Lebanese and, you know, they had their own contacts. So it was kind of, you know, through word of mouth that I eventually kind of tracked down the person who played Salam, which is Hannah Shamoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Leslie Bibb plays Audrey. And Leslie Bibb is a, she's, she's a pretty well-known actress. She's been working for years and years and years. And she's, she's one of these people if you don't recognize their name, then you would definitely recognize her face. And I found her through a, a female director that I'd worked with who became a friend of mine, Teresa Rebeck. She's a, a playwright, a TV writer, and a director. She's a really prolific woman and really successful and really kind. And when I told her I was looking for an actress and gave her the kind of the specs, she gave me a list of people and she's like, I really like Leslie Bibb. You should, you should contact her. And I did. And Leslie was available and up for it. And that's kind of how that happened. Wow. You just, you just rung her up. Uh, I think Teresa initially made like an email, the intro. Hmm. And then Leslie said, let's talk on the phone. And I think she called me actually. And she was, you know, she's really busy. She's always working. She was, maybe in Atlanta or something. And she's like, I'm going to be back tomorrow. Let's hang out. You know, she was really great. What was it What was it for her that made her want to do it? I think Teresa's introduction really helped. Yeah. Um, I think it was the fact that I was a female director and she doesn't encounter a huge amount of them. She liked the story. She, she said she really identified with the character. And, and we did, you know, we made like little adaptations we it wasn't like I, I have a script and everybody kind of like has to bend themselves to that script. We had a rehearsal day, I think it was maybe three days before we shot, and it wasn't really a rehearsal. It was a read-through and a discussion about what worked and what didn't work and a discussion about the character and what she felt she could bring to the character and, you know, everything like down to what the character was wearing was a discussion. That wasn't, you know, I didn't come in and have this preformed idea I had some ideas but it was really about what Leslie kind of wanted to bring to the role as well how common is that is it like is that just dependent on the director or the relationship between the director and the cast or like 
what determines whether someone is more of like it's predetermined and set and this is this is my vision versus like let's let's develop the vision together I think it's just an individual thing. You know, there's some really great directors out there who are really, really wedded to their ideas and their script, and it turns out really great, but they don't want, they don't want an actor to change a single word of it. Mm. And I, I just personally feel... I have really strong ideas about what I want, but it's also... It's, it's not such a narrow kind of band. There's, like, a lot of room for interpretation within my you know, my idea. So if someone suggests something that I think is just so outlandish and so outside of what I want, I will say no. And that Mm -hmm. happened, you know, like my costume designer had some really wacky ideas and I was like, "Eh, no, that sounds really weird. Costume designers, they all show up to work looking like Grace and Perry trying to to put all their weird clothes in the movie. I feel like I'm I'm detecting this tension between costume designers and sound sound people. What what is it? (laughs) I just have tension with all of them. Is Every it, single one of them. Is it the mics putting the mics on? Like, is that whether you put in the mics on? They, no, they, I mean, honestly, there shouldn't be attention. No. I make it my job to get on with them because otherwise you can't do your job. Right. Right. It's such a people business. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to know about the. Really, I'd like to know what it's like to film, and maybe this question to both of you, to make something in New York. Because we're actually recording this from um, my studio here in Dumbo which, um, for people who don't know, is in, in Brooklyn. Um, Dumbo stands for Down Under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass. It's a total misnomer, though, because there's no overpass. No. So I think what happened was somebody said, well, we'll call it Down Under Manhattan Bridge. And then the guy next to him said, yeah, but that, that spells dumb. <laughs> should, we put, should we put an O on here? <laughs> I know. Um, over the overpass. Well, there's this famous shot. So this, there's the shot of... Um, the Manhattan Bridge and just in the archway you can see um, the Empire State Building yeah so there's always I come out for lunch and there's always hordes of tourists 24-7 pretty much Um, but I come out to get my lunch and often there's people filming around here it's quite popular for film and there'll be days when I'm trying to get around to get the just go get a sandwich and they're like no you can't go here you've got to go off the street yeah go down here two steps no no can't go in here it takes me half an hour just to get a sandwich from around the corner um, so yeah, what are, what are the what are the things that are unique about filming filming in New York? I think you actually, um, you said you filmed part of uh, Salem here, here or in near this area. Yeah, I mean, we we had this. Um, well, Salam, as as I said before, is about a female Lyft driver, and obviously a Lyft driver has a passenger. So mm. the the film really is about the interaction that she has with this this passenger who's very different with her, and part of the film involves driving around New York and one of the scenes is early in the morning and she's driving around or she's driving back to Brooklyn from upstate and she drives down um, through Manhattan the FDR she she drives down the FDR and then she goes over the Brooklyn Bridge yeah Um, so we were stopping we had to you know reset so we drove across the Brooklyn Bridge like eight times to get (laughs) the shots that we needed and um you know, every time you make a short film, the whole reason you're making it is to kind of raise your profile as a filmmaker and hopefully make more connections through film festivals. That's what this film Salam ended up doing. We, we, you know, shot it with half the money or just or maybe two thirds of the money that we needed. The rest of it was put on a credit card 
and then it ended up premiering at Tribeca, which was amazing. Yeah, and it was great. And what was the reception at? And I mean, again, you guys correct me, but for me, it's the like preeminent film festival, short film festival in New York, right? Or one of them. Absolutely. I mean, it's not just short films either. Oh, okay. I thought it. I don't know. I'd... It. Um, they have specialist um, festivals in New York often. You know, documentary or short or comedy or I don't know what else. But uh, Tribeca, I'm pretty sure, has all categories. It's the biggest one in New York, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and um, there's Tribeca and the New York Film Festival, and they're both quite different. I think Tribeca has a more of a a New York slant, and the New York Film Festival is more kind of international. Gotcha. Um, and it's smaller as well. Okay. So yeah, what was what was the reception like? Like, how did what, what did you um, yeah? How did it go down? Um, well, it was really great actually because Tribeca gave us four screenings, which was kind of amazing because wow. quite often with film festivals, they're like, okay, you you got in, your film is going to screen once at nine o'clock in the morning in some random place, and Tribeca, you know, gives you four screenings and um, two different very great venues so they gave they, Tribeca gives you four scenes or you, Tribeca gave you four for this they film gave, they gave every short they film. gave every okay yeah so your film is is programmed into one program and then you know that program is, is screened four times but we actually got five screenings because there was a little extra special screening that Nespresso were hosting for their Nespresso customers so they they took a, a fiction film and a documentary film and my, mine was the fiction film. And that was one of the most fun nights, actually, because everybody who came to that screening was just a totally random person who had received an invite from Nespresso because they bought Nespresso pods. And they'd kind of replied not knowing what they were going to go to or what they were going to see. And they were just kind of excited to be there and you know you got a real cross-section of people there was like a lawyer there was a dog walker there was you know like a retired man that who you know just really interesting people that's who, nice because you want people to see your work people right. that aren't just coming because they know you or they know someone who you know like knows the producer and it, it's all about actually finding a, a, a real audience from New Yorkers. That's cool. Yeah. So that was, that was for me, that was the most fun part. Um, but yeah, the other, the other screenings were great as well. I mean, it was, it's just nice because I feel like New York people are so excited about films and they're excited about seeing short films and that's quite unusual. Mm. Um, and, and I imagine the subject matter, I mean, not only is that a fascinating subject matter, but the, you know, you, you saying how it, you, it meant something to you as an immigrant. And, you know, it is a city of immigrants in many extent. Right. Or at least, and even if you're not um, from out from out overseas, you still can, I think, relate to someone's journey from, from another place and being far away from where your family are. Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, I don't know what it's like to have traveled, have to, to have been exiled from my country because my country is in conflict. And I don't know what it's like to have family members left behind who are in danger every single day. But, I, you know, there are things that I do know that I can bring to this film and then I can, you know, work with other people who have a little bit of their experience to bring to the film. And then, of course, you know, the success of the story that we've told is really judged or measured by the reception of the audience. And it was just really... It was, it was really heartwarming to have people say afterwards, you know, this really meant something to me. We had a, a Syrian woman. We had um, the actor who plays um, the brother in the, 
the brother of Salam, who was actually Syrian, he couldn't make the screening. And I think it was just the week before there'd been bombings in Damascus and his parents, or I think it was his mother and his brother, uh, were in Damascus. And he experienced that same... um, the story that we tell in Salam is about someone who hears of a bombing and then discovers that someone she's very close to has been injured and she doesn't know if they're going to be okay or not. And Cal went through that 24-hour or 36-hour waiting period of not being able to get any information or any communications out of Damascus and not knowing whether his family were okay or not. You know, so... But I think that's I think that's the part of it for me that felt... Not, not, not that it's relatable because obviously I don't think anyone can relate to that specific situation but um, it did seem that you did invite the audience in to at least part of that you didn't make it so drastic that people couldn't have some empathy or see themselves in there I, I thought even there was a subtle nod I think um, at one point uh, I don't think it's, is it her brother or her son or a little boy's off to school and yeah, she meant nephew. your nephew and she and someone says has the bullying stopped or has it continued it was just it was one subtle mention she that, to that without open it didn't open up that entire world but you just realize oh there's that just in that one word there was obviously a whole chasm of you know they they t- put him in a little i heart ny shirt and, and he runs off all pleased because he's got a new shirt and then and then they say to each other i, I hope that i hope the bullying stops now yeah it was really touching you're good yeah I mean, that's kind of, that's really what I want to do is tell stories that aren't, you know, whacking people over the head and and really trying to kind of exploit their emotions. It's like, you know, really trying to, in a way, um, touch on issues and make people think about them but without making the audience feel exploited or even the subject matter feel exploited. or, or, Or uncomfortable. Because I think, you know, if you think about, you know, we, we grew up in the UK, right? Comic relief, you know, the tried and tested, you know, pictures of, you know, children, you know, in parts of non undescript, you know, African country and then saying, right, let's donate now. I think obviously that's playing on one part of human emotion, but um, it's a very kind of, you know, shocking tactic versus one that's much more, I think, empathetic and human bringing people into the, the, that situation and, and getting them to connect in a very different way. And hopefully that leading to a response in some way. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the intention. I, I think I was, you know, I feel very privileged that I went to Palestine and I was really welcomed with open arms by the, the friends and the, the people that I met over there. And I felt like there was this kind of... Um, this, this kind of disjunction or this conflict or this this difference between the people that I knew and the people that I saw being represented or demonized in the media. You know, seeing um, Muslims or Arabic speakers being, you know, discussed in such... Or being um, The way the Trump administration has just demonize them to such a huge extent it was it's it's just kind of disgusting and I felt like I was in this privileged position in in a very simple way just I just knew that they're just people just like we are and some of them are good and some of them are bad Mm -hmm. but people have emotions and people have feelings and people react to situations in very similar ways and empathy is all about you know being able to 
understand somebody else's situation and see like a little bit of yourself or feel something for that. And that's what I wanted to do. It was remind people that Muslims and Arabs are people too, and some of them are good. And mm-hmm. you know, we're looking. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad, just like us. And we're we're following someone who is good and is pure and is kind. And she's having, you know, she's being, she's stuck in this um, horrific emotional turbulence. Um, for any aspiring filmmakers, screenwriters, um, script supervisors, uh, what what advice would you give to them or, or even to someone maybe who's in Wales listening to this thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's a world I'm interested in. How, how would I even think about entering that world or what's the right path I should be on or what, where should I be trying to study or what should I even be reading? Like what, what advice would you give to them? Before you answer, I think it's worth mentioning that the film industry and the television industry in Wales is better now than it's ever been. So there is always going to be access for, uh, for people to get into that world by being in Cardiff. Swansea's got an industry as well and there are circles there and stuff getting made there all the time. There's a decent film school in Newport too. So that's... Wales is um, Wales is doing very well on that front. Sorry, I didn't mean to... No, that's great that because answer. I don't know... I don't have the, as much information about the film industry in Wales as you do because I've never worked in it. Or Even in the film industry in the UK, I've only made two short films of my own in the UK and never worked on anyone else's. So, you know, I'm really not informed about how it works over there. Um, but I think you saying that there is a film industry in Wales, it's about positioning yourself. The, if the film industry in Wales is in Cardiff and, and you live in Wrexham, you're going to have to probably relocate, unfortunately. Or you could go to Chester and work on Hollyoaks. Right, if they'll have you. <laughs> Hollyoaks still going? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. It must be. I don't know. I don't think it's ever going to end. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's about terrifying thought. <laughs> I think it's about um, it's about informing yourself. You know, what interests you? What area of the film and TV industry interests you most? Um, do, are there any contacts that exist, kind of within? Like, do you know somebody who knows somebody? Like, just try and, and use every opportunity that you have. And if you're in a film school already maybe one of your teachers or one of the visiting lecturers can can help you out or just I think it's just about like knocking on doors essentially um and there there have been so many years that have gone by where I felt like nothing was happening but I'm just a really stubborn person and I just keep going even when it feels like nothing is happening I'll just be keeping busy and keeping moving forward and not letting the fact that something hasn't happened yet just completely stop you in your tracks i think it's like about continuing to try and find a way around roadblocks and continuing Mm. to try and um, capitalize on what you have done it's it's a tough industry to get into um on on any level i think you know because as a crew member especially in the uk from my what my friends have told me who are camera assistants um and you know pas and things like that it's it's hard to get in but once you're in i think you know it's it's about 
the work that you do and the friendships that you make and the connections that you make. So getting in for the first time is the hardest thing. And that's just about persistence and perseverance and educating yourself, finding out where people are, what people do, how to reach out to them. I'd also recommend skill set. Skill sets an organization in, I think, all of the UK. It certainly operates in London. I'm assuming it operates uh, elsewhere in Wales as well. And they will um, take on... Uh, young people who are interested in getting into film and television there is some form of education involved but most importantly they'll place you they'll place you on jobs and uh, you'll be you'll be a trainee for a proper professional department and you'll be getting a wage and um, I know tons of people that are working in the industry now and they started through skill set there's also um Volunteering at um, the like the National Film and Television School and the London Film School. If you're in those areas, um, the the thesis films or you know the student films that are being made, they're always looking to crew up. And obviously, it's really unpleasant to work for free. But I, I think in this industry, it, it kind of is expected for some amount of time. Um, so it's kind of think of it as a training experience. But volunteering on films like that, you know, National Film and Television School DPs do pretty well. Mm. Editors do pretty well. Directors often go on to direct TV and their own feature films. So it's about, you know, using those kind of uh, um, opportunities to leverage yourself. Mm. Um, Now, if someone wants to follow up and see some of your work or get in touch, where's the best place for them to find you out there? Um, I have a website. Uh, it's just my name. So it's www.clairefowler.com. That's uh, Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E. Um, so I think it has my agent's information and my information. And it has my films and some links to my films. And you can find me on social media just through that, I think. We hope you enjoyed listening, and if you did, then please subscribe and leave us a review. The more people review the show, the more people will get to hear the show. Yeah, and if you like, just get in touch. The email address is podcast.newyorkwelsh.com, or you can always contact us through our Instagram or Twitter, which are simply at New York Welsh. And if you'd like to stay up to date with the latest goings-on, you can do so by subscribing to the monthly newsletter on our website, newyorkwelsh.com.